This is the Kavnis HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. Hello, and welcome to the Kavnis HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is William Tincup. William, are you ready to be great today? Absolutely. William is the president of Recruiting Daily at the intersection of HR and technology. He's a writer, speaker, advisor, consultant, investor, storytelling teacher. He's been over 200 HR articles, spoken at over 150 HR and recruiting conferences, and he's conducted over 1,000 podcasts. William serves on the board of advisors for companies such as Weave, Vervo, Brazen, Hyperpool, Velocity, Hunt Ninja, Engagely, Echovate, Bobcatch, Continue, Hyphen, Recruit Karma, Rollpoint, Work4, Talent Tech Labs, and Smart Recruiters. William is a graduate of the University of Alabama at Birmingham with a BA in Art History. He also earned, his, earned a Master's in American Indian Studies from the University of Arizona and a Master's in Business from Case Western Reserve University. William, you're a very busy person and you're well known within the HR industry. I know a lot of people say, you know, they're HR leader, HR thought leaders, but I believe you can truly say that you're your HR leader. I just want to thank you for everything you're doing for the HR profession. So I want to turn it over to you. And what is William Tinkup working on right now? Well, I'll tell you what, and thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, Jason. I'm, I'm at the point right now where I'm looking at the hype phase that we're going through in technology around artificial intelligence and machine learning and bots and, and all kinds of ways that basically technology that's supposed to get better on its own or get better with our help, that will inform us in ways that we could have been informed before. So a lot of the technologies, as you well know, through the, the last 30 years have been really kind of repositories. You know, we place data in the ATS, we place data in the payroll system, we place data in the compensation application, etc. But we've never really had the expectation that those things tell us anything inform us. Yeah, there might be a dashboard or there might be something like something like that. But the expectation that you and I are going to live through the next couple of years is is it's the, that they're going to provide insight and that insight will also provide action. And I'm excited and terrified all, all at the same time. And, and why I called it the, the hype phase is I think we've got about two years uh, just pure hype. Vendors hyping us being kind of at a place where we don't really fully understand what's going on. And we went through this several times. We went through this with, because, uh, you know, 20 years ago, all of the HR software was delivered on-prem. You know, you'd, you'd get your CDs and HRIT or IT would load your software locally, manage it locally. And now most HR software is delivered to the internet, a SaaS, uh, software as a service. So we went through a hype phase. Uh, with SaaS, where the people that were really, really bullish on SaaS, that's all they talked about. SaaS, deliver it through the internet, the software delivery mechanism. And then we went through another hype phase in social. Social, social, social. HR's got to get social. Social with uh, Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and what are we going to do? And HR kind of put their heads in the sand and hoped that it would went away. And the hype phase was was really intense for two, three years. And now we kind of look up and we say, hey, social you know, yeah, we got to have policies and, yeah, you know, we got to maintain a certain decorum and, and, and we, we're going to learn. But we went through a hype phase. And then the last one was probably, uh, and they weren't that far away from social, was mobile, where, you know, that traditionally HR applications were delivered through the desktop, whether or not it was full or whether or not it came through the internet. 
They were really built for, you know, guys and gals working at desk in front of a terminal, in front of a monitor, and doing the bit in front of a monitor. And with going through this this phase of mobile, well, now we have HR applications that are built for phones and tablets and, and the desktop or all of the above. Mobile kind of responsive design where they can actually fit on any screen. But there was a hype phase, hype phase around mobile where mobile was the next thing. It was the next killer app. It was the next thing. And I think right now what, Jason, what you and I are going through with all the HR technologies that are out there is this, this phase right now of, let's just kind of talk about artificial intelligence and just keep it around that. But artificial intelligence will save the planet. <laughs> it'll, it'll change everything. It'll get rid of all the recruiters. It'll get rid of everything you've done wrong in HR. AI will solve all your problems. It's almost like we go back to the 1850s and it's being sold as an elixir. You guys are going town to town selling the elixir of, uh, of AI. And it's going to solve all you. You know, you'll grow hair, you'll get taller, you'll be able to attract women. You know, it'll solve all your problems. And, and that's, just a, that's just a hype phase. And a, a simple question, what am I thinking about? I'm trying to figure out how long is this hype phase going to last? And what do we see on the other side of the hype phase? When, when can we get to the point where we ask, where practitioners, day-to-day practitioners, ask the questions, what is artificial intelligence? What is it going to really do for me? And what insight is it going to prepare, give me? And what action is it going to help me? with like the insight is going to be great because i do believe in my heart of hearts that ai will connect some dots that we don't connect normally so i like that i don't i don't know where in the, in the you know i don't know where in the hype phase we are but i do like that thought but i also i don't think it stops there i actually think and like a lot of people i think that it goes further than just giving you insight i think it's going to actually create recommendation and create action and help us, you know, learn from the inside, but also what to do with the inside. So I'm, I'm optimistic, absolutely optimistic about the future of HR technology. It's just right now we're in this awkward little kind of junior high phase of, of uh, we don't know how it's going to play out it could, because we're in the hype phase. William, looking at your, in your crystal ball, do you see either AI or another type of technology changing how recruiting is done? Oh, absolutely. That I can already see. So there's things at AI. I mean, let's take, uh, I'll take two tools, Pocket Recruiter. So Pocket Recruiter is an is a AI-based sourcing tool. And what you do is you put in job description and what you want. You prioritize all the things that you need. It goes and scours the entire internet and it brings back candidates and then it ranks 10 of them and, uh, or 20 of them or however you want to set your aperture to. Then you could take those candidates and then run them through Vervo, which is a different technology that basically puts candidates into a scenario, you know, like a real work scenario. And, and all of this can be done with technology, no, no human touch. So you could go out and scour the internet. It pulls back the best candidates, ranks them. You take that ranking, put them through another technology, put them all through a scenario, if you will. And then on the other side of the scenario, you're going to know the three people you should actually spend some time with. So how does that change? Well, you don't have people having to do any of that. That's just technology doing that. So, uh, so yeah, is it changing? It's yes, it's absolutely changing the face of, of recruiting. It's not necessarily getting, there is a fear, Jason. And I think it's a real fear. I think it's a legitimate fear that AI will get rid of recruiters. 
So that is a fear. I don't believe it, by the way, but it is a fear. I, I recognize that people are like, people are afraid of snakes. I'm not afraid of snakes. <laughs> I live in Texas. <laughs> I'm not afraid of snakes. However, I re- recognize that people are afraid of snakes. AI will not replace critters. It'll change what they do. So instead of all of that hard work and sourcing and screening and assessment and all of that other stuff that, that recruiters had to do before, recruiters are actually going to be able to spend more time with fewer candidates and go deeper and be able to make better recommendations for their clients. So, and for their hiring managers internally and for third party for their clients. So I think it's actually going to raise the status of recruiters and get them back to doing what they do best as opposed to doing all of this, you know, plumbing. Simple question, Jason. Has it changed? Yes. (laughs) Will it displace HR or recruiting? No, but it will change what they do for sure. So let's talk about recruiters for a minute. Recruiters sure. get a lot of grief. You know, some of it probably deserved, some of it probably not deserved. Why do recruiters get some of the most grief and what thing that can they do to change percept their perception? Well, okay, so you know, I great question. Great question, Jason. I think some of it comes down to most hiring managers might not know what they want until they see it. So it's almost like that old definition of, you know, art, if you will. I don't really know if I like it. I don't even know if I like it until I see it, stand in front of it. And then I decide, eh, I don't like that. Or yeah, this is great. The clarity between a recruiter and a hiring manager. So a hiring manager says, okay, I need a software engineer that does this. And I think young in one's career as a recruiter, you take that and go, okay, sounds good. I'll be back. And then they go out and do their job and come back. And then the hiring manager says, yeah, none of these work. So the, uh, the folks that have worked in recruiting for a while, they've been around the block per se, they, don't, they hear a hiring manager say, I want a software engineer and it needs to look like this. They don't run away. They actually stay there in that conversation and go, okay, let's, uh, let's kind of dig into this a little bit. You know, how many years of software engineering do they need? Do you have any preference of schools? Do you care if they uh, relocate or do they need to live here? You're like They take them through a battery of questions so that they basically understand if I bring you this person, this exact person that you asked for, then you're going to take them into the process, correct? Yes, good. They really, really vet the, uh, the rec and they make sure that there's perfect clarity so that they understand what the hiring manager really wants. And then the hiring manager has to articulate and they force them to articulate. The, be- the best recruiters I know force hiring managers to articulate exactly what they want. None of that games of, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know until I see it. Nope, no, no, no. That's a waste of time. So you've got to actually define it. And when you define it, I'll go find it. But you got to define it. And I'll help you define it, but you got to define it. I'm not going to go fishing for, uh, for folks until I know exactly what you want. And that's a, that's a kind of a fun metaphor in Texas, right? You, you tell me you want to fish. I go out in the lake and I get you a catfish. And you're like, eh, I don't really like catfish. Okay. <laughs> All righty. You said fish. I brought you a fish. That's essentially what recruiters could do better is hit the pause button because everyone's in a hurry. You know, it's like, we got to get it now. We got it now. Uh, time to fill. The job's opening. We got to get We're losing productivity. We got to get it now. Hush. Rush, 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 rush. The best recruiters hear all of that and then slow down and then go, yeah, 
I'm, I'm not in a rush until I know exactly what you want. You told me you want a fish. Great. You want a bass fish? How big? You know, let's let's get into the details. Those are the best recruiters. Those are the ones that have kind of been around the block the most. And, and, and you know, it's all predicated on making some bad experiences or having bad experiences because they've been out there rushing around trying to find stuff and brought it back and been rejected. Yes, I think that's great advice for recruiters. Also, I think people forget that recruiters work for the company, not the candidate. So... Unless the company embraces, you know, maturing their candidates have a great experience, I don't think there's much the recruiter can do in, in that regard. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's some of the recruiters would tell you they work for both, that they're a candidate advocate internally with the hiring manager because they're selling. They're selling the candidate on the job. They're selling them on the experience, the values, the culture, the hiring manager, the work. They're selling that candidate. And so there's a real bond, if you will, with candidates. But at the end of the day, they get paid by the company. And so they also realize that they've got to go and sell the hiring manager on all of those things as well. So they play a really good role. They play a really interesting role. They've got to work both sides. They've got to actually make sure the candidate's just as excited about that opportunity as the hiring manager is excited about the candidate. William, next, let's talk about the board you're on. You, you do quite a few boards. How do you invest in time on all these boards? Like how much time does it take up every month? Like one hour great, company? Great. Great question. And uh, and I get this question routinely. So imagine you and I have a sandwich shop. And let's say in a given week, we have a thousand customers. If Tuesday at three o'clock, all thousand customers showed up, we'd be out of business. But if they show up over the course of seven days at different times and you know, need different things from us, we can, we can manage them. That's essentially what board participation, uh, whether or not so the board of directors or board of advisors, the difference between a board of advisors and a board of directors, the board of directors has fiduciary duty. The board of advisors doesn't. Typically, an advisor in a software company um, interacts with the founder and is an in-between between the founder and the management team, the founder and the board. So don't have fiduciary duty. You can give them advice. They can take it or not. And I would tell you that it's a, it's an ebb and flow. Sometimes like all of the different boards, they all need something different from me at different moments. I'd say like smart recruiters, I've been on their board for, you know, seven years, eight years now. Jerome doesn't need anything from me. I mean, we might talk once a year uh, just to kind of catch up and, and, you know, things like that. But someone that I might have just took under my wing, you know, they might need, you know, introductions to media, maybe introductions uh, to some prospects or pr- practitioners. And so it might be a little bit more like an hour here or there, but none of them are, you know, I have a day job. So I would tell you that none of them really impact my job because they don't all show up at the shop on the same day. Thank God. And, and a lot of the stuff that they need is digital, so I can do it at night or on the weekends and things like that. How does a new startup convince you to be on their board? That's a great question. They, they can convince me up to a point. So I have three things that I take uh, technology companies through. One is the entrepreneur. I have to love the entrepreneur. Period in the story. It's a it, it's a no go if I don't love the entrepreneur. I mean, I just have to. I've got to be able to see their vision. I've got to see their excitement. Their you know their passion. I've got to see that they can do it. Their competence. You know, I got to see all that stuff. I got to be able to envision it. And then there's a no go, no go after that. After that, then it's the tech. I've got to then get in the tech. I typically do a demo. Ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions about what's there, what's not there, what's coming, roadmap, etc. But I secondly, I have to fall in love with the technology. And, and then that's a go, no go. And so the third is, is I have to be in love with the market opportunity. So we've, I've, we've gone down the path. I've, I love the entrepreneur, respect the entrepreneur. I love the technology. I respect what's being built there. And, uh, and then the market opportunity. If the market opportunity isn't big enough, 
then then it's a, it's a, it's a waste of time for everybody. So uh, I, it's a gauntlet, quite frankly, of those three things. And I've actually had people that I loved two, didn't love one, and said no. And so it's everyone, every, uh, I'd say every gal or every guy that does this type of work, either at the board level or the advisory level, they have their own kind of recipe for what they think success looks like. So mine's pretty simple, entrepreneur, tech, market opportunity. William, I'm you're on a lot of boards now. Uh, can more companies come to you to, to, you know, sell you on being a part of the company or are you at your limit right now? No, I'm, I'm actually in conversations with a couple other ones right now. Uh, ones that, you know, again, you know, you, you can never tell when you fall in love. I know you've been married for a while. I've been married for a while. And, yeah, I met my wife at a fraternity party that I was not invited to. <laughs> and uh, I believe I was drinking beer out of a Frisbee when my uh, wife uh, first saw me. So, you know, you, I, you can't predict love. And, uh, and so, you know, I kind of look at it in the same way. If somebody knocks on the door tomorrow and, and I start to kind of ebb and flow and I like them, then I'm going to walk the dog. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, then at least I found somebody that I want to keep in touch with because things can change. Like I could maybe not like the market opportunity today or this week. They go away for a year or two, come back, and all of a sudden their market opportunity is, is right on. So I, I kind of, and I, I try to give advice to anybody that calls. So even if a startup calls and they don't necessarily want or, or they're thinking about an advisory stuff, I still will give them the best advice I, I can. You know, like I don't, I don't look at it as like I'm trying to filter through and only talk to people that, because you just never know, you know, what conversation is going to be kind of your next best conversation. So I, I, I tend to take a lot of calls with technology just just to just get, get myself and throw myself. Because, Rihanna, back to your first question, I'm still trying to figure out this hype phase. And so it's good for me to talk to damn near anybody I can get on the phone. William, now, can you talk about a time you were successful in the past, so what you learned from the success and what our listeners can learn from this? Uh, years ago, this 100 years ago, I was working at Walmart. And, uh, oh, good God, I was out in Midland, Texas. And I was running the domestics department. And back then, it's, again, this is late 80s, lamps were sold in boxes back then. If you can remember back this far, they, they, these big, giant, bulky boxes had these lamps and lampshades in them. And when I first took over the department, the, uh, our sales were down. And so over a course of a weekend, I rearranged the department <laughs> and uh, I put green felt wall green felt all up a wall the very back of the store and i you know put the the little the shelves up and you know did this whole bit i, I worked basically the entire weekend like and and then i took all the lamps that i had every lamp back in the stock room and every lamp that was out on the floor and i uh, i ran electricity back there and i lit them <laughs> so so from the store it is a big store about 180,000 square foot Walmart uh, from the front door when you walked in you could see lamps <laughs> it was like the glowing sun back in the very very back of the back of the store and and you know this was not this first of all the, I, I broke all the rules uh, this is not the way that Bentonville, this is not the way that the furniture buyers had intended their lamps to be both merchandised or sold. So I, I threw all that out the window because I just didn't think that people would buy lamps in boxes. I know I wouldn't buy a lamp in a box. So, uh, so I, I did this and lit the wall. Lamps are flying out of the store. 
I mean, just like we couldn't keep lamps in. We'd, we'd buy more lamps and lamps, you know, lamps would just be flying out, out, the, out the door. Well, one day, oh, hell, it's probably about six weeks later, Sam Walton, whom I, I knew pretty well, actually, visited the store. And uh, I was on an end cap fixing something, I don't know, teaching some, you know, employee how to do something. And Sam comes up and taps me on the shoulder. And at the time, mind you, I've got long hair. I've got hair all the way down to the very, very bottom of my butt, braided and earrings. So uh, I did not fit your typical <laughs> Walmart executive, if you will. And, and he comes up, he said, uh, my first name's Jeffrey. He said, Jeffrey, I turned around like, Sam, what's up? How are you doing? <laughs> and he goes, uh, tell me about this wall. What's, what's going on here with these lamps? You know, why, why are the lamps, why are we, why, what's going on? I mean, like he had a thousand questions. I could barely keep up with it. What's going on with this wall? What are we doing? Well, you know, I don't understand. This is, you know, this is not normal. What's going on? I said, lamps. I said, lamp, let me tell you the sales. So I just pivoted the conversation back over to sales. I said, let, let me just show you what's been going on. Since we did this, here's what sales have been in lamps. And he's studying the same piece of paper I'm looking at. And he goes, so he goes, why did you, why did you do this? I said, lamp. I mean, uh, Sam, why would anybody buy a lamp in a box? You got to see it. You know, you got to be able to touch it. You got to be able to feel it. You got to look at the light, how it comes out of it. You got to look at the lampshade. You got to, it's, it's experiential, which I don't, I don't think I use that word. It's, that's a nickel word, but I, you got to be able to touch it. You got to be able to do this stuff. And he looks at me and he goes, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Jeffrey. He gets on the phone calls Bentonville and has the entire furniture buying team fly down. <laughs> so so imagine 70 suits showing up two hours later and, and they all walked in and I'm like, oh man, I am so fired. <laughs> I, I need to get my resume. Maybe Kmart's hired. I got to get my resume together. And they all came in and of course, the same battery of questions. Why'd you do this? You didn't follow the modular, you know, give these, we study these things and we've got, you know, data from customers and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I threw all that stuff out the window. And I just said, yeah, I hear you, but here I am in Midland, Texas, and here's what I know, and here's what I did, and, you know, the sales are backing me up. So I, I hear what you're saying. I apologize that I, I didn't follow your rules. Like, I'm, I don't want to be disrespectful. However, those rules didn't, didn't work here. And so I had to do something different because sales were down. We weren't moving any lamps, and I had to do something different. I did it. We're here now. What do you want to do? And Sam goes, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to light lamps in every Walmart. <laughs> that's, that's what we're going to do. And, and from that moment, literally, like the decree was made, Sam Walton spoke. And I, I think it was probably within six months, every Walmart, when it's time, we, I think we had 2,200 store, stores worldwide, lamps were lit after that. That's a so, great story. So, so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, you know, it's taking risks. You know, when you know you're right, or you feel you're right, right, you know, it's hard to say that you know you're right. But when you feel you're right, I mean, I, I walked into a situation where furniture sales were down. Lamp sales in particular were really terrible. I had to do something different. I couldn't just live with it and go, well, you know, selling lamps. <laughs> That's that's not that's not how retail works. <laughs> I literally tore up all the rules and did something different. And, you know, I could have been easily I could have been easily fired. I mean, on, on several different, my store manager could have fired me. Uh, district manager, regional manager, Sam, any of the furniture buyers, I could have been fired like 18 different ways to Chicago. But because I had a little bit of the data, 
six weeks of sales data, but I, you know, I had some data and I could prove to them it was a good idea, at least for Midland, Texas. It literally changed that part, that little tiny part of Walmart forever. That, that's a great story, William. Next, let's switch to a time you failed. So talk about a time you failed, what you learned from this failure, and what our listeners can learn from it. Well, the fa- I mean, I fail every day. <laughs> let's, let's start with the obvious. <laughs> I, I pride myself on taking a lot of risk and failing and then learning from it. But I, I'll tell you one of the ones uh, that I still remember is uh, – I was selling into a RPO group in uh, Boston, and uh, it was at Fidelity. Fidelity used to own this RPO, and and they made me. Uh, the, one of the rules was, you, if you're going to go to Boston, if you're going to be in front of this group, this group of executives at Fidelity, you had to wear a suit. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of a pear-shaped guy. I'm not a. I'm not. I don't look great in a suit, and I I've never really worn a lot of suits, so I've never really gotten comfortable in a suit. And uh, I mean, I'll have seersucker. So, like, if it was seersucker, I could probably pull it off because just I, I love seersucker. But outside of seersucker, wearing just your traditional, you know, two-piece, three-piece suit, two-button, three-button, you know, whatever, it's just not my bit. And I love guys that are in suits. Like, I love looking at guys that really, really look great in suits because I envy that. It's like, wow, I wish I could look great in a suit, but I can't. So, they forced me to wear a suit. I failed. The presentation was terrible. I got up in front of all these seasoned executives, and I was not myself. I, w- I took things defensively. I couldn't answer their questions with clarity. Uh, I didn't have a grasp of the data. I was just all over the place. I wasn't myself. And, and I would tell you that when I'm not me, I mean, just in general, when I'm not me, I fail. But when I allow myself to be me, good and bad, you know, I, I haven't yet cursed on your podcast because I want to be respectful of you, but, but I curse like a sailor. Like, that, that's just normal language. I don't even think about it, and I don't try to do it to make me feel mad. That's just how I talk. And, and what I learned from that is they forced me into a construct where I wasn't comfortable, and I wasn't in my own skin. And I couldn't get comfortable. No matter what I did, I could not find a comfort. And so I... I, you know, I completely failed. We didn't get the deal. It was terrible. I was terrible. I was all to blame. It was all my fault. And it was because I allowed someone else to, uh, to force me into a position of not being myself. And, uh, and all the times that I failed in my life, I can almost kind of to a T go back to that exact kind of mantra of uh, if someone else is going to box me in and not let me be me, then I'm going to fail. And now, if, now, on the other side, if people will allow me to be me, I got a, I got a reasonable chance of being successful. I got, you know, got more than a 50-50 chance. But if I'm boxed in and I can't be myself, I was speaking at uh, Arkansas Sherm, you know, 100 years ago, and I remember uh, right, right before I go on stage, a gal walks up to me in this program in a conference. She goes, William, this is a very conservative crowd. Uh, you, you really can't curse. And I thought to myself, like, I'm literally walking on stage. <laughs> I've just been mic'd up, and, and now you're telling me this. And uh, first of all, I thought it was just kind of a terrible timing. But I, I went out, and in the first 30 seconds, I cursed. Because I thought to myself, I'm not going to allow that person or that audience to then say, yeah, we, we love you, but you can't be you. And so I, I tell people, you know, first of all, you got to find your comfort zone. You got to find your skin. You got to find where you, whatever that is. And that takes years, experience, failure, success, all that. But you've got to find it. And once you find it, don't let anyone take you out of that. 
don't don't allow anyone to kind of dictate what is what you perceive as your own kind of success. So yeah, Jason, I, I mean, I, I do on the small failures, micro failures, I fail every day. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of look at it as, as one of those bits that I try to learn from every, every failure, even though I know I, I fail every day, make a mistake. Because, you know, I've got two kids. I've got an 11-year-old boy, a 7-year-old boy. I've got a wife, you know, been married to for 24 years now. Good gosh. Failure is about. <laughs> so, so I try to learn from those failures as best I can as well. That's a great advice and great lesson you just gave us. I really appreciate it. William, talk about somebody who's helped you in the past and how they helped you. So I'll preface it like this. If, because uh, I give very, uh, as you can probably already tell, I give very pointed feedback. So when someone asks me, I will tell them my version of the truth. So I don't do a whole lot of unsolicited feedback. So if you, if your, if your audience kind of will just write down, pull out a piece of paper, and draw a square with four boxes. Feedback is either on one axis, it's either positive or negative. And on the other axis is either solicited or unsolicited. I tend to not do well with positive feedback. I, I know this can sound really crazy. So just bear with me. When people tell me, like after I give a presentation or after I do something, and people say, hey, man, that was great. I tend to not listen to that. <laughs> because I know myself well enough to know if it was great, I know it was great. If it wasn't great, I know it wasn't. So I tend not to take unsolicited feedback in either positive or negative forms. If I don't ask you for your opinion, I probably don't really care about your opinion. And I'm not really going to listen to it anyhow. However, solicited, if I ask you your opinion and you tell me positive or negative, I'm taking it to heart. I'm writing it down. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'll probably dream about it. I'm going to really take it to heart. So I did a presentation in Chicago. This is probably four or five years ago now. And uh, a gal that, that I just absolutely love and respect, I asked her after the bit. I asked her, I said, I said, okay, you know, what do you think? And what could I have done better? Or what do you think went well? And she said, well, here's the deal. You're great on stage because you're funny, you're entertaining, you can chuckle, you whistle, like you got, you know, you got an entertaining value, but your examples weren't deep enough. And so you lost some people because you stayed at kind of a safe level of, uh, of just kind of not placating, but just kind of staying on a safe level with examples. And uh, I think people tuned out. They liked you. Like, you're going to get great scores. People are going to like you, and they'll probably invite you back. But if you really wanted to engage that audience, you really should have gone deeper and give them more concrete. You got them. You got the examples. You just didn't. You chose not to go there. And uh, it hit me in the heart, Jason. I mean, it was, like a, it was like someone just punched me right in the heart. She was right. <laughs> I did. I stayed at the safe level. You know, it was funny and affable, and I had the audience doing the bit, and I stayed safe. And, you know, people don't learn that much in that safe zone. It was kind of a, you know, they were going to give me a B. I'm going to give them a B. They were all going to call it kind of, you know, the day. And since that, and, and since that presentation, I've then decided, no, I'm going to go deep. I'm going to go, I'll start shallow and I'll start, you know, safe, get people kind of warmed up into the bit, but I'm going to go deep. If anything, if, if the criticism is I went too deep, 
okay, I'll live with that. But she gave me that advice. I mean, she looked me in the eye and knows, I know that she loves me. I know she respects me. And she just punched me right, <laughs> right in the heart. <laughs> but sometimes that's what we all need, that, that little punch. So to that's speak. right. That's right. <laughs> William, can you recommend a book for our listeners? You know, and we talked about it pre-show. I am and have been for probably about five years now. I've been going back and reading all the classics. So I built a list. Now, this is going to its both fascinate your audience and also just kind of make them laugh a bit. I built a book list of the 250 books that you should read before you die. And it's a lot of stuff that you are, right? These are classics, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Tolstoy and you know, Oscar Wilde and stuff like that. So I built it and I put it on Pinterest of all places. So if you go to Pinterest and then you put in my name, William Tencup, you'll scroll through. There'll be a board and there'll be 250 books. And right now I'm, I'm in Hemingway. So I'm pawing my way through Hemingway. Anyways, to me, my type of writer, because it's very simple, very it's very simple and complex, but it's very uh, descriptive language, short words, short sentences, very descriptive. And you know, I just love Hemingway. But I think I'm going to move on from Hemingway and then do Michener next. I don't want to read. Obviously, Michener wrote about Texas and I want to read about Hawaii as well. So if you're, you know, business books are great. And I, I have no, no diss, no diss at all for business books. And, and there's probably to set that up and why I say it that way is I have three degrees. So I have a bachelor's and two masters and whilst in school for eight years of my life, I read nothing but business books. I mean, I would, I read, I, hell, there was a period before 97, I read every book on branding ever written, every Harvard business case study ever written. I kind of almost got my fill. <laughs> Because I read, I threw myself off the deep end and into it. I read so much that now I'm kind of bored by business books. I mean, I'll, I'll every once in a while I'll catch something, a synopsis of something that really makes me think, or I'll watch a TED video and it really gets me to think differently. But for me, there's there's nothing like the the classics. I mean, Catcher in a Rye. You want to learn something about business? Yeah, you know, read Catcher in a Rye. You'll, you'll learn everything you need to learn about business. So I, I'm kind of at that phase. I know it's a little odd, but then again, I'm absolutely a little odd. So, uh, so it fits. But yeah, if, if you're interested in the classics in that way, go to that Pinterest board and, uh, and go take a look at that list and you know, start at one and go to the other. Read them all before you die. William. Can you provide our listeners some of your social media platforms so I can reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Jason. Thank you. I'm really easy to find on the internet. I have, uh, I've kind of made that decision. Uh, my name, William, and then Tin Cup. Tin Cup like the movie or like the whiskey, T-I-N-C-U-P. If you put that into any of your favorites, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. If you just put William Tincup into Google, you'll find my email address and or my cell number. So I am super easy to find on the internet. You, you know, it won't be hard for you to find me. And for our listeners, we'll have all the links to everything that William's talked about in our show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. William, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you provide any uh, advice or wisdom for our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is, is, especially back to this AI stuff, take it slow. Whenever you're talking to vendors and you're, and you're uh, you know, talking amongst yourselves and pr other practitioners, take it to the, you know, not how it works. Okay, so the best example I could say is like a Tesla. I don't know how a Tesla works, but I've been in a Tesla and it takes me from point A to point B. 
Okay. That's going to be a lot of HR and recruiting technology of the future. You don't really need to know work. You just need to know the outcomes of what it does, what insight you can get, and what action is it going to help you with. Okay. And I think that not only listening to vendors, because vendors are good, they're going to they're going to sell you on a lot of that stuff, but talk to your practitioners, talk to your peer group, really, really spend time calling each other and saying, hey, we're using this for this. What are you using? Uh, how's that working? What insight are you getting? And I think the more that the practitioners talk, I think we might get through this hype phase faster. Yes, that's great advice. William, thank you very much for being on the Cabin Chaser podcast. You give us a lot of valuable advice and a lot of great experiences that you've had in the past to help us succeed. Absolutely. And hey, you, when you get down to Arlington to see your daughter, I want you to come make sure we go out and have coffee. Yes, de- yes, definitely. And to our listeners, thank you for your time. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again and be great every day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again and be great every day.